0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode. I am your host Jeff Lambert. It's great to be back with you today. We have a. Excellent topic we're going to be going over today, and that's the history of the Washington Senators, a now defunct baseball franchise based right in our nation's capital. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to go through a couple points that I've been trying to bring out more lately, and that's the feedback that I get from you. So every week, if you're a subscriber to the email newsletter, I send out a poll and I ask for your feedback on the topic we discussed. In the last episode, we talked about Herb Washington, professional base runner, uh, in his career. And I asked you the question, should Herb Washington be remembered as a pioneer of the sport? And you were split down the middle on this one. 50% of you said yes, that he changed player usage. And 50% of you said, no, he was a publicity stunt. Doesn't deserve to have that term pioneer placed on him. So thank you for that feedback. I thought that was interesting. Um, I'm split down the middle still on that one, too, to be honest with you. He was an interesting individual to look back on, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. The other thing I wanted to take time to do every episode was to point out feedback from you. I love to hear from you, whether it's an email, a message on social media, you name it, however you decide you want to get in touch with me. Love to hear your feedback. Uh, I did get an email from one of our subscribers, Mark S., and he uh, messages me from time to time with. baseball things that he finds. And he had a, uh, a great one that he sent me this week. He said, quote, hi Jeff. I listened to the VEC podcast, Bill VEC, uh, which got me interested in the VEC family. There is a great new documentary on Netflix titled the saint of second chances. If you have some spare time, it is well worth watching. I started it last night. Actually, I found it very interesting so far, uh, Bill Vec is probably one of my favorite episodes that I recorded. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. If you haven't had a chance to go listen uh, to the impact this guy had on baseball and certainly uh, just an interesting life that he led, I would encourage you to do that. So don't forget too, uh, thanks to Mark. There's a great uh, documentary about his life on Netflix. I would encourage you to check it out. And then finally, I want to go through and welcome the new subscribers to our email newsletter where we've had a lot of you since the last episode. So real quick to go down the list, Uh, Avi C, Aaron Quad Squad, Monsensical, great email name there, Ingram S, Paul M, Antonio M, Matthew A, Steve A, Mac S, Thomas D, Jeff S, 17cyborg27, another great username there, Laura S. Stuart H, Corwin S, and Sean R. All of you, welcome to the community. It's great to have you. Thanks for taking a moment to sign up. If you would like to get listed on this at the beginning of a future episode, and also become a free subscriber to dip your toe into getting uh, more acquainted with this show, I do give you some perks. Obviously, the one right off the bat is you get to join this community of baseball and history enthusiasts that I'm trying to build. We're growing daily We have this collective excitement about baseball's past and future, and there's more to come. So uh, just by signing up as a free subscriber, you're going to get plugged into that. You get a new episode of this show right in your inbox. So instead of just getting the podcast, I include these articles with extra photos, videos, quotes, polls. So you can really deepen your experience with each week's show topic. Another bonus I give you for free, just for signing up, you get the bonus show this week in baseball history. And that's where I take a quick, uh quick look, excuse me, at the most significant events that occurred over the past seven days for you to be able to enjoy just a little extra thing to add to your, your baseball schedule for the week. Right. Uh, and then of course we have a paid tier uh, which if you have the means and you want to try and help me grow the show more, uh, that is obviously available as well, but you can take that first step and sign up as a free subscriber. All you have to do is go to rounders.substack.com. Again, that's rounders.substack.com. There's a link in the show notes. Take a moment. Would love to have you join this community. All right, folks, that's it. Let's get to our topic for today. The Washington senators. The Washington Senators were officially established in 1901, and they kept that name from 1901 until 1904, and then they changed their name to the Washington Nationals, and that name stuck from 1905 to 1955. Then it was switched back to the Senators again from 1956 to 1960. Throughout their entire history, the name that was most commonly used between fan-to-fan interactions was usually the Senators, though. There were other nicknames that they were given. They were commonly referred to as the Nats, and they were also referred to for a short time as the Griffs, which was a reference to their manager, Clark Griffith who was uh, a manager for the team from 1912 to 19. 19- so over time, the Senators' moniker became synonymous with the team. The franchise was established in Washington, D.C. for one main reason, and that was because they were joining the newly established American League, which had been formed primarily by a gentleman named Ben Johnson. He was the first president of the AL. And while Johnson wasn't a direct owner of the Washington Senators, he was deeply passionate about baseball, and he saw the potential in establishing a new team in Washington, D.C. But it wasn't just because he thought that the nation's capital needed a team. This was also a strategic move on his part. See, the nation's capital obviously had symbolic importance for whichever league could place a professional team there. And Ban Johnson and his team of executives knew that if his newly established American League was going to succeed against the already established National League, that putting a team in DC would give them prestige and national relevance. Additionally, the city had a fast growing population, had that political significance, so it made it an attractive market to establish a club. And at this point, I want to take a quick second to remember the rivalry. That was very, very heated, especially early on between the American league and the national league. These are two of the oldest and most storied leagues in baseball history. They both had this feud going on in the early 20th century when the American league was established and it was meant to be a rival major league to the much older national league. Now, the tension rose up primarily because the American League, who again is under the leadership of Ban Johnson when it starts, started to lure star players away from the National League teams by offering them higher salaries. And you have to remember during this time, it wasn't uncommon to have several professional leagues that were in operation throughout the United States. So having another league wasn't necessarily a big deal in itself. The big deal was the fact that the AL was actively poaching players from the NL and the NL did not take kindly to that. There were other things that intensified the rivalry. So for instance, there was a distinct rule difference between the two leagues. The playing style was distinct and even the baseball philosophy was just very different. The National League was much more traditional, wanting to follow those New York style rules more closely. The American League kind of had a new kid on the block mentality. They were willing to add some new uh, limited rules here and there to be able to make the game a little bit more modern, a little bit more interesting. So these factors helped stoke these competitive fires between both leagues during the early 1900s. We've seen it obviously decline in recent years, and we see that they even merged together officially in the year 2000. But we can't understate the importance, the significance of the fact that these two leagues were very heated rivals for a very long time throughout their history. And that was kind of the fun, I think, of being a fan back then. So in 1901, the Senators became one of eight charter franchises to join the American League and begin this new league's kickoff season. Now, where did the Senators play their games? Well, initially, they played their games at American League Park, which was often called National Park or Boundary Field. And this was located in Washington, D.C.'s Northeastern Quadrant. And it was a basic wooden ballpark, very typical of the area, able to be built up very hastily, wasn't meant to be something that was going to stand the test of time. Now, this park actually burned down in 1911, so only a 10-year span. And that fire destroyed almost all of the stadium. And it was supposedly started by a plumber's neglected blowtorch that was left on. Not a great idea to have a blowtorch around a wooden stadium. So the uh, team took the opportunity to be able to build a new stadium, which they named Griffith Stadium in honor of Clark Griffith, who we mentioned before was a manager for the team from 1912 to 1920 very popular figure in Washington baseball history. So Griffith Stadium replaced American League Park, and it became a very iconic venue throughout baseball history as time went on. Now, the park was particularly known for having a very large outfield and quirky dimensions. So some of the peculiarities of this new park included, and it's a long list. So to give you an example, it had a really deep center field. And it ran 421 feet from home plate. So it made it very challenging for hitters to hit home runs in that direction. Additionally, I had a really short right field line. So that was only 320 feet from home plate. So if you were a left-handed hitter, you had a distinct advantage when you were playing in this park. The stadium also had an unusually raised infield, which sloped down as it got closer to the outfield. So this was meant to be some fans thought or some historians think as a home field advantage for the senators, because if a ball was a slow roller because of the downward pitch, it could keep going a little bit further than other stadiums might allow because of that, just slightly um, lowered terrain as the ball went further and further through the infield. The stadium also had very odd angles along its walls, so the outfield walls weren't uniformly shaped all the way around like a traditional baseball field would have. So outfielders had to navigate very awkward spots when they were tracking fly balls or going after potential home runs. And this made fielding very tricky in this stadium, especially if you were a visiting player from a visiting team and you were unfamiliar with the idiosyncrasies of this park. In addition to that, there were obstructions that you had to deal with if you were a fielder. So in center field, the outfield wall cut in like a triangle at one point. And that was because of the fact that there was a huge tree on the other side that they couldn't cut down. So they had the wall cut inwards to go around it. Now, why wouldn't they cut down the tree? It's an interesting story. Actually, there were five houses that were located behind center field where Griffith Stadium were built, and the owners refused to sell their properties. So the stadium built around their yards and that tree, which was on their property. Now, the stadium was also a hub for significant cultural events of the time period. There were concerts there. Other sports hosted their events there as well. It was surrounded by a vibrant African-American neighborhood, actually, for the time period. So it became a focal point for Negro League games during this time. The Homestead Grays actually played many of their games in Griffith Stadium. There were two Negro League World Series uh, events that were held there, and the Washington Redskins actually played their football games there for 24 seasons from the beginning of their history. So Griffith Stadium, long and storied landmark during Washington Senators' time and just for the city overall. So the first few seasons where the Senators were challenging, to say the least, their inaugural season in 1901, they finished at the bottom of the league with the 61 and 72 record and the subsequent seasons were not much better. The team really struggled at times to climb out of the league's lower ranks for that first decade. And in fact, the 1904 Senators lost 113 games. But these initial years were crucial in establishing baseball culture in the city, and it laid the foundation for their future success. You had players like Big Ed Delahanty. You had a talented young pitcher named Walter Johnson show up on the scene as we get to the end of the early 1900s. And this provided these little moments of brilliance and pointed to there could be good times ahead for this new baseball franchise. Let's talk about the emergence of a young core for the Senators as about 10 years into their history. So, the Senators were not particularly successful on the field during that first 10 years of their existence. However, their fortunes began to change thanks to the introduction of several young and promising players. And at the top of that list was a notable young pitcher named Walter Johnson. Johnson was from rural Kansas. He was 19 years old when he made his debut for the Senators. He had a unique sidearm delivery and this unprecedented speed on his fastball, and he quickly became a sensation in the baseball world. Now, Johnson's abilities on the field became evident almost immediately once he took the mound for the Senators. To give you an example, in 1910, that's his second year in the league, He showcased his potential by striking out 313 batters that season, and he secured an ERA of just 1.36. He played for another 21 years, and he earned the nickname Big Train. And if you look at the end of his career, he clinched 417 wins, and he struck out an astounding 3,508 batters. So his records in the major league stood unchallenged for the most part, for over half a century after his time, and he obviously is cemented as one of the game's greatest pitchers, and he did it all for the Washington Senators. So, he was a big reason why the club started to improve, and the Senators' trajectory took a positive turn when Clark Griffith, who was a former star pitcher for the American Association, he was brought on to be a manager for the club in 1912, and he was very successful at the job. He brought a wealth of uh, expertise and information to the club and he made pivotal decisions when they mattered, not only on the field, but also in relation to player personnel decisions. So Griffith stayed as manager from 1912 to 1920, but he wanted to take things further because he was frustrated as the club's leader because he saw an ownership group that wasn't willing to spend money like they should be to build a winning squad. So discontent with that team's management, Griffith acquired a controlling stake in the Senators, bought his way in, and that move really ended up saving the franchise because he was able to build them into a dynasty during the 1920s and 30s that really made them one of the top clubs in the league. So going from manager to owner was a good thing for this club early on when they were really struggling to make themselves known and established. So, under the leadership of 27 year old player manager Bucky Harris, who Griffith brought on to lead the team, the Senators clinched their first American League pennant in 1924. And they did it with a roster of young guys like Goose Goslin, Sam Rice, and of course, Walter Johnson who led the team all the way to the World Series against the New York Giants. And, in a dramatic Game 7, the Senators emerged victorious, and they won their first and only World Series during their entire 60-year stint in Washington. The Senators' winning streak did not end in 1924, though. They secured the American League title again in 1925, but they lost the World Series to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, again, you saw the combination of Griffith and their player manager, Bucky Harris, bring the Senators back to the World Series in 1933, but this time, unfortunately, they lost to the New York Giants. So you had three World Series appearances in less than a decade. That's how successful this run was for the club. But this was the top of the mountain for the franchise, because after that 1933 season, where they lost their second World Series, the team never won more than 90 games for the rest of its history. So let's talk about the reasons for the decline of the senators after the good times in the 1920s and early thirties. Well, the senators financial struggles really started to compile after that 1934 season because 1933, they lose the world series 1934. They have an absolutely horrible showing. They finish in seventh place to end the season. And because that was such a bad season and they lost so much money on ticket sales, Washington's front office decided to trade their star player manager, who at that time was Joe Cronin, to the Boston Red Sox for a journeyman and never all-star named Lynn Larry for a cash sum of $225,000. And this was the first evidence that things were not going well for the franchise. They traded the face of the club, a future Hall of Famer and player manager Joe Cronin, basically for cash. Poor seasons continued for Washington year after year as they closed out the 1930s. So low attendance became normal. This caused compounding revenue problems for Clark Griffith and his ownership group. And the team just waddled in mediocrity for more than two decades. From 1940 to 1960, the Senators finished higher than fourth place just twice. Just twice in 20 years, they finished better than a fourth place finish. To make things worse, the American League added a new franchise just 40 miles away in Baltimore, and the Orioles very quickly built a strong team, and they became pennant contenders by 1960. So you had a situation where Washington fans, who were tired of the Senators with this losing culture year after year, started to shift their focus to a new option that was only a few hours away. The Senators saw increased media scrutiny during the 1950s after these decades of losing over and over, They kind of became the butt uh, of everyone's joke for baseball teams. And an example of that is a popular Broadway musical that debuted in 1955 that was entitled Damn Yankees. The movie's plot, it was about an elderly Senators fan who sold his soul to the devil to transform into a young baseball player who suited up for the Senators to change their fortunes. And in that play, the main character leads Washington to a pennant win versus the New York Yankees. You can kind of think of it as an Angels in the outfield of the time period. Now, it would be very easy to pin the blame for the franchise's decline on the fans because, oh, well, they weren't showing up, right? It's their fault that the team couldn't put money in. But I would say we need to take a closer look at the ownership's decision-making. All right? I mean, first of all, let's start with the obvious. When a team is bad year after year, it's hard to be able to get fans excited about showing up for a product that's never improving. It's sort of like the Oakland Athletics of today when you think about it. They've suffered decades of mismanagement And that's made the franchise this continual, where are we going to go next situation? And fans have to see players that they grow very uh, meaningful bonds with leave after just a few short years. That's the cycle that the Senators found themselves in over and over and over again. So ownership wasn't committed to putting a good team on the field. And on top of that, in 1947, the Brooklyn Dodgers broke the color barrier when they started Jackie Robinson for their club. Now, other teams quickly got with the times and they began signing other star African-American players too, but the Senators didn't. As a matter of fact, longtime team owner Clark Griffith refused to integrate the team. It took him five years until 1953 to sign someone that was a non-white player. And he was very open about not wanting to do this. He stated in an interview, quote, Nobody is going to stampede me into signing Negro players merely for the sake of satisfying certain pressure groups. Now, after that interview in 1953, after five years of watching other clubs pick up very talented players and improve their fortunes, Griffith finally signed a non white player named Carlos Paula. Paula was a Cuban born prospect and he was dark skinned, but the press noticed very quickly that it was the only signing that the club made for the next few years. And legendary sports writer, Shirley Povich called out Griffith and the senators for this in a Washington post article stating that Griffith would accept dark players from other lands, but never an American Negro end quote. Another criticism that was levied against Washington's ownership was again, the lack of spending. Now this is tough because a lot of times we make the knee-jerk reaction to say that, well, ownership has the money, they're just not spending it. To his partial credit, Clark Griffith was a loyal baseball fan. Remember, he was the manager of the club through most of the 1910s, helped lead this team to a successful run in the 20s and the early 30s. But his only source of income after he bought the team was the Senators. He was not part of some diversified ownership group. He wasn't a rich tycoon who kept the team as a side hobby. When the team played poorly, he had no other means to be able to fund them and improve them. Griffith's wife, Addie, stated in an interview after he died that, quote, he never had any money to spend. It was always throwing money into the club, every cent we had, end quote. So, who's to blame for the perpetual decline of the Senators? I think, obviously, Griffith made some bad management decisions year after year. But then you could also stop and say, well, he was spending what he had. It just wasn't much. And that in itself caused problems, too. So after Clark Griffith died, he passed away in 1955. Some were wondering what was going to happen to the club, because one thing you could count on Griffith for, even if the team wasn't good, he loved the Senators slash Nationals and would never move them from the city. But let's be honest, all good things do come to an end when you're in a shaky situation like the Senators found themselves in talent-wise. So after he died, he left the club to his nephew and adopted son, Calvin Griffith, who took over as the team's president. And from the start, it was quite evident to the media and the fans that this was not going to be the same approach that his uncle had when it came to running this squad. There were signs of relocation that started popping up almost immediately after Calvin took over. For instance, Calvin started being very public with the press about how other team owners were telling him how tired they were of taking their clubs down to play in Washington, D.C. in front of small crowds. He sold Griffith Stadium to the city for a really cheap price and then leased it back. And that might seem like an innocent business decision at first glance, but keep in mind, this was a common move that occurred before other teams had pulled up stakes in years before. The owners of the Braves, the Browns, and the Athletics had all done this stadium sell and lease to the city before relocating their franchises. So obviously, Senators fans saw this move as suspect. In 1957, Rumors began circulating that Griffith was in negotiations with a group based out of Minnesota to sell the team. On top of that, you had this up-and-coming new league called the Continental League that was threatening to put a team in Minneapolis, and the American League was worried because they had done this to the National League back at the turn of the century, and now you've got this other league with a lot of money threatening to put some teams in big cities where they wanted to expand. So the American League was supportive of Calvin Griffith's efforts to move the Senators to Minneapolis. And so in 1960, the American League worked with both sides to finalize the deal quickly, and the Senators were officially sold to that group in Minnesota, and they became the Minnesota Twins. But that's not the end of the Washington Senators because the league wasn't ready yet to give up on baseball in Washington, D.C. And this is where we see the Washington Senators Part 2 emerge. Even though the previous club had left to play in Minnesota, along with all of the players, a new expansion team was greenlit for the 1961 season. Imagine being a fan in the city, and watching all of the players that you like, all of the managers and coaches that you've gotten to know, Pack up and move to another city and put on new uniforms, but you still have a team. But now it's filled with new players and new coaches that you have to get to know. That's what the Senators fans went through for the 1961 season. So the new owners of this group, unlike Calvin Griffith, showed at first to be very committed to building a winning franchise that was going to stay in the city. The new owners formed a group called the Senators 2 Incorporated. It was a group of 10 investors, and each of them had an equal share in the club. And it was founded by a guy named Elwood Pete Quesada, who was a World War II general and military pilot who later became the first head of the Federal Aviation Administration. So this group, equally spread across 10 people, were going to be the new ownership of the Washington Senators Part II. And excitement was high for this new expansion team. You go into that 1961 season, you got President John F. Kennedy throwing out the first pitch for opening day. The fans were excited because just around the corner for the 1962 season, there was a new stadium that was going to open for the club that was built entirely with federal government money. I found that interesting. And it was going to be a dual stadium that was shared between the Redskins and the Senators slash Nationals, right? So all around, you know, people were excited. Okay, it's a new lease. Let's see what happens. And the club surprised everybody and went 30 for 30 to start the season. Not bad for an expansion team, right? But then it went downhill. The club finished second to last in the American League, and they finished dead last in the American League in attendance. Now, 1962, the new park opened. Fans were excited. So they showed up to the stadium. And attendance improved, but the team's record did not. And they actually finished in the basement again in 1962. This 10-person ownership group was, by their own admission, hemorrhaging cash, and they began by firing the manager. Then they fired the general manager. And then as time went on, 1963, 1964, no success, they started trading all the veteran players. After that third losing season, five of the 10 owners sold their shares in the team and got out. So by 1968, the other five that were left, so again, we're talking just seven years into this new expansion team's history, you've got pretty much everybody who had signed on at the start looking to get out. So the original 10 looking to not be involved anymore, but there were other groups that stepped up and trying to save the franchise and keep a team in Washington, D.C. Those groups included, one of the top ones, was legendary owner and promoter Bill Veck. He stepped up with the management group to try and buy the Senators. And if you don't know Bill Veck, you need to. Check out my episode about him in the show notes. It is worth your time. Legendary promoter. Really changed the game of baseball for good in a lot of ways. There was another investment group that was led by entertainer Bob Hope and Hall of Famer Stan Musial, who tried to buy the Washington Senators. And then third, most prominently, you had a guy named Robert Short, who was another Minnesota-based businessman who wanted to buy the club. And his partner, Gino Pellucci, was the inventor of the pizza roll. (laughs) And together, they had put in a bid to buy the Washington Senators from that original 10 group. Now, it came down to the wire The team decided not to sell to Bill Beck, even though he had the best offer financially. And they decided to go with the bid from Robert Short and Gino Pellucci, pizza roll guy. And Pellucci backed out at the last minute, actually didn't end up signing his name on the dotted line. So Robert Short, he won, his bid became the one that was taken, and he became the majority owner of the Washington Senators for the 1969 season. He came with a reputation, though. He was known for moving franchises already before he bought this team. In fact, he had bought the NBA's Minneapolis Lakers and had moved them to Los Angeles almost a decade before. And right from the start, it looked like he was aiming to do the same with the Senators. Some of those shenanigans he pulled early on that pointed to that. He demanded that fences be built around outer parking lots of the stadium of the recently renamed Robert F. Kennedy Stadium, saying that these areas were unsafe. Remind you, this is a brand new stadium. He openly went on the airwaves and blasted fans for their lack of support in his first season as owner. For instance, in a 1970 interview, he said, quote, look at last year's attendance. I can round up a girls team and draw 500,000, end quote. Short, also very peculiarly, peculiarly? peculiarly, you're with me, decided to schedule two exhibition games at the end of the 1971 season in Arlington, Texas. Why? Well, there were rumors that started floating around that there was a group in that area that had interest in a new expansion team in the American League. Huh. He also started increasing comments in the media about moving the club elsewhere, kind of sticking his toe in the water putting that out there for the world to think about. In a televised interview, he stated, quote, if you can't excite a million people in your club, then you had better start looking around, end quote. In another interview, he said, quote, everybody keeps saying baseball must have a team in Washington. I don't happen to agree, end quote. So it was clear from the start, to me at least, Short had little to no intention of keeping the senators in Washington. He saw an investment, he was experienced in handling being able to move them to other places, and he jumped at the opportunity. So in 1971, Bob Short started pleading poverty and forecasting bankruptcy. He went to the American League and he stated he needed $160,000 to cover back rents that he owed to the Robert F. Kennedy Kennedy Stadium. In that meeting, he was quoted as saying, quote, there's no way Bob Short can operate the senators in Washington any longer, end quote. And yes, he referred to himself in the third person in that exchange. By August, Short was also publicly saying that in addition to the 160 k he needed $3 million to avoid disaster and to keep the franchise in Washington, a large sum. Some groups stepped up again to try and keep the senators there. Bob Hope's group popped back up. Bill Vex's group popped back up. Both put offers on the table to buy the club from short and keep them in the city. After those offers came in short again, very suspiciously said, uh, I need more than $3 million. I need $12 million because that's going to cover my initial investment. That price was so high. It would have been insane for either of those groups to accept it. And they didn't. At the same time, a nine-person group from Texas approached the American League, and they offered to purchase the Senators and move them to the Lone Star State. Short was ready to go, he openly supported the idea, and he had even prepared an exhaustive report that he gave to the American League that must have taken months to make over time. But yet he had it ready, peculiar timing again. He was very, very much pushing for Texas as being the best option. And the American League eventually accepted this bid. And the second version of the Washington Senators moved to Texas, becoming the Rangers for the 1972 season. Short walked away with $7.5 million from that deal. And fans and media figures blasted him for that move. The Sporting News wrote a scathing article on his ownership of the Senators. And this is one of my favorite lines from that article that said, quote, for acquiring mountainous debts he couldn't pay, for jacking ticket prices to the highest level in baseball, for bungling his self-appointed task as an amateur general manager, and for pleading poverty and begging his landlord to bail him out, Short has been miraculously rewarded, end quote. President Nixon, who was a devoted baseball fan and supporter of the senators at the time, stated, quote, Short is a jerk. I sat behind him at games and I can tell you moaning and all the time. End quote. Several members of Congress were upset. They called for hearings to investigate Short's finances. They introduced bills to revoke baseball's exemption from antitrust laws, but nothing ever came of those efforts. On top of that, in 1973, which was just a year after Short cashed out. Two guys, economists, baseball fans from the Brookings Institution, used data Short had provided in those financial reports. They did a study and concluded that Short spent just a thousand dollars of his own money to buy the senators the first time around. He borrowed the rest of it from other individuals and never paid it back. So he bought the senators essentially for a grand and left with seven and a half million dollars. So, the story of the Senators came to an end. Two clubs based in Washington both went to other cities, Minnesota and Texas. What happened to Washington baseball after that second group left? Well, look, the city went without a baseball team until 2005 when the Montreal Expos were moved to the city and they became, again, the Washington Nationals. And there was a lot of conversation. Should we name them the Senators? Should we name them the Nationals? The team Nationals won out that name over the Senators, mainly because it was um, not as uh, specific, you know, that it didn't align with just the term Senators. You have other government officials in D.C., so the term Nationals was chosen because it was a bit more all-inclusive. So since that time, since the Nationals made their re-debut in the city, the Nats have been great. They've won a National League East wildcard berth. They've won four National League East division titles. They've won a National League pennant and they won a World Series title. Now, being a Nationals fan over the past 120 years, it must be a continuous exercise and hope and then unavoidable frustration. And the city has long deserved to have success and sustainability that it now has with the current franchise. And I hope it stays that way because this team continues to seem to enjoy that stability and the city deserves that. Just keep Bob Short's family and descendants away from the front office and you should be fine, Washington. Folks, thank you for joining me for another episode. It was great jumping into another team autopsy with you. If you haven't already, take a minute and sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's free. You get a bonus episode called This Week in Baseball History. All you have to do is go to rounders.substack.com to sign up. If you have the financial means and you'd like even more perks, consider signing up for a monthly uh, paid plan as well. But overall, thank you for making this a part of your week. It's been great to spend time with you. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. See you next time.